Welcome back, everyone, to this episode of the Becoming Immune Competent podcast. Dr. Carol Wada here, board-certified pediatric and adult allergy, immunology, lifestyle medicine physician. And we love having all different conversations related to allergies, autoimmunity, and anti-inflammatory living with some amazing guests sprinkled in. And today, I am just delighted to welcome Alexa Prass. Alexa is a fellow Buckeye. She's a registered dietitian now living in North Carolina, and she combines her over 10 years of personal experience with celiac disease with education to support people with celiac disease and other medically necessary gluten-free diet. Alexa believes that living a gluten-free life does not have to hold you back, and with the right knowledge and support, you can too live your best, most authentic gluten-free life. So I'm really excited to dig into the science, the strategy, education, all of this in our conversation. But first and foremost, I would love to hear a little more about your story, Alexa. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, I have over 10 years of experience with celiac disease. And my story is kind of different as I knew I likely could develop celiac disease before I went gluten-free. So my dad was diagnosed first and he had learned that it's hereditary. And so myself and my siblings were tested at that time. And at that time, when I was tested, I was probably in like elementary school. I tested positive for the gene, but I did not have any internal intestinal damage. So we had both the blood test and the biopsy, which the biopsy is like the gold standard for diagnosis. And at the time when I had my endoscopy, there was no damage. So the recommendation was that I could eat gluten until I started having symptoms. And then fast forward to high school, I started having symptoms. I started feeling not well and I knew why and I knew how I could fix the problem. Although at the time, I definitely was not happy about it. (laughs) I Before then, I was very much, I'll never eat gluten-free. This is terrible. But I felt so terrible myself that I was like, I have to do this. And so now, over 10 years later, I am here talking about how it really isn't necessarily that bad with your right support system, with your education, that yes, it is a burden. Yes, it can be frustrating at times and all of these things. The food isn't the same, of course, but that it doesn't have to hold you back and you can still do the things you want. Go to college, go travel, have a family, all the things. So why don't we start talking a little bit more about the symptoms that people can experience or things that they may be experiencing. It might prompt them to talk with their healthcare team about the potential for celiac disease. The most commonly known symptoms are usually GI symptoms because the autoimmune um, response is attacking the small intestines. Most of the most well-known symptoms are in the GI tract. So diarrhea, constipation, um, abdominal pain, those types of things. But there's actually over 300 documented symptoms related to celiac disease. Also things like nutrient deficiencies or infertility can be some people will have neurological symptoms like brain fog or fatigue, migraines. So there are a lot of symptoms, which makes it even more challenging possibly to get a diagnosis if you have some of those symptoms that aren't the ones that are more well-known, like the GI symptoms. I think that has been one of the things that was most surprising to me 
through my residency education, and in particular in the pediatric side of my residency education, we learned this association between celiac disease and then a kiddo who was failing to thrive. And failing to thrive is like a clinical situation where a kiddo is falling off the growth curve. They typically are having lots of malabsorption. So they're not absorbing their nutrients, but they're also not absorbing liquid, you know, in their gut. And that results in a lot of diarrhea symptoms. And so I think for me, one of the most surprising things to learn was that it could be constipation. And then also certainly beyond that, some of the other neurologic symptoms in particular that you mentioned. Why, how frequently is this happening? How prevalent is celiac disease? So the estimate that's widely talked about is about 1% of the U.S. population. It's still an estimate and it's hard to fully know um, because a lot of people, it'll take a long time for them to get diagnosed. There's a lot of misdiagnosis. Um, I was reading the statistic earlier. It's um, like six to 10 years for a person with celiac disease to get an accurate diagnosis. And there are also a lot of people that will maybe not get an actual diagnosis and then try the gluten-free diet and then never actually get tested. And so once you go gluten-free, then you're starting to heal your gut and all of these things. And then they don't want to do a gluten challenge to do the endoscopy and get an actual diagnosis. I often will meet folks in that predicament where, and this is why I've mentioned a few times on podcasts and emails and sprinkled in different places that If you are thinking about doing a gluten-free diet of any way, shape, or form, before you do it, go talk to your doctor and ask them to order blood work to screen for celiac. Kind of as you mentioned, the endoscopy or the scope is kind of the gold standard, but we have some pretty good testing that is less invasive, less expensive, that in a perfect world, if you have celiac and you take gluten out, it gets better. The lab work becomes normal. And then you're a bit stuck between this rock and a hard place in not knowing truly what that diagnosis is and then kind of knowing long-term what the implications may be. And as you mentioned, kind of that family history of knowing whether or not your family members um, should be concerned about this too. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, in different situations, it may be more necessary to have the medical diagnosis Um, because you can, you know, without going to the doctor, make these changes. But if you have children and want to know if they should get tested, or if you're still in school and you need some accommodations, there are different reasons why it would be really helpful to have the actual diagnosis and have a doctor helping you with that. So as we think about family members, and you had mentioned that you had undergone screening because of your dad's diagnosis, is that something that's typically recommended or folks should think about if they maybe have a a parent or a sibling? Yeah, so it is definitely recommended that any first degree relatives, so siblings, parents, children, grandparents get tested because it is highly hereditary. And then just to know, the one thing that's hard is you can have the gene and it never turn on, but having that information about yourself, oh, well, this could develop in the future and this is how I would go about living with it and figuring it out and working through that. I'm thinking of one colleague in particular that I I work with, non-medical colleague, and their whole family, like everyone has celiac and they have the gene and they're like chugging along in, in their adult life. 
doing okay, tend to minimize the amount of gluten they're eating, but knock on wood, the gene hasn't turned on. Have you come across any information to suggest that there are certain things that may be associated with that gene turning on or turning off? Yeah, so they're still trying to do more research. Obviously, it's not like one single thing, but a lot of the conversation is around like stress in the body, trauma, surgeries, Mm -hmm. childbirth even, and just overall stress in the body. And there's still a lot more research to be done in that to be able to pinpoint more information about it. But definitely just like overall stress, trauma, all of those kinds of things could possibly be related. It goes back to some of the similar things that we consider, or at least I tell patients about when we're talking about things like chronic hives or lupus or other things where you have this predisposition and then sometimes the dominoes fall as they're going to fall. As you think back to when you noticed those symptoms and ended up with the formal diagnosis, do you remember what your kind of initial reaction was at the time? Yeah, it was really hard overall. Just making those changes. I was in the midst of starting to apply for college and figuring out what life looked like there. And I didn't have a lot of support from my friends, which was unfortunate and hard. Overall, I had my dad and my sister also was diagnosed. So at home, it was really easy. But I remember when I was on the dance team at my school and we would perform on Friday nights at the football games and my group of friends would go to a pizza place afterwards because it was like the one place that was open that late in our, our town. And like I would just sit there and watch my friends eat. Mm-hmm. And so it was definitely really hard transition for me and also just, you know, figuring out how to do this in my day-to-day life. I think a a reminder to me as a mama too of helping my kids understand their own and then their friends' differences and and doing our best to help people feel included and is, is so important. Yeah. And although it was hard, like I was still able to verbalize like how I physically felt. Uh, I can't even imagine had I been a child and like going to a birthday party and not having those things. And definitely, like you said, just like helping other people understand that we all have our different needs and how to include people when they're there and help them feel included and not have those negative feelings. So this might be jumping ahead a little bit. I'd be curious if as you look back now, 10 years out, is there any advice you would give younger you back then knowing what you know now? Oh, goodness. Sorry, that's a little bit of a pageant question. (laughs) (laughs) I think the biggest thing is to keep the people around you that support you and that want to help you feel your best and be your best. I've definitely let some people, I guess, shed away from my life. And not to say that like they can't be a part of your life, but maybe they're not as big of a part of your life if they're not, you know, helping and trying to learn how to best support you and care for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are people that I'm just like casually friends with, but wouldn't go out to dinner with because they're not going to take the necessary precautions or or choose a restaurant that I can participate in. And so I think the people around you are just really so important in your health journey and just your life journey in general. That's so true. Now we think about the nitty gritty of making those lifestyle changes that you mentioned. What all is involved in transitioning from what is typically a gluten-filled existence 
to a gluten-free way of eating? First and foremost, I think learning how to read food labels. I feel like initially you're probably going to maybe transition to more cooking just as you're like getting used to figuring out the differences in gluten-free food and just trying to build your confidence and just also advocate, learning to advocate for yourself and ask the right questions. There are a lot of questions you may ask if you're going out to eat to make sure things are safe for you. But in the initial parts, I think it really comes down to figuring out the kinds of foods you like, the alternatives that'll work for you. And some of them are great and some of them are not so great, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> but you just have to find the ones that that you enjoy and that work for you and your family or whoever is living with you. Some of your appliances, you may have to get rid of. Unfortunately, there are very few, one of the biggest ones being like a toaster, Mm -hmm. but like figuring out different things in your kitchen, if you need to replace them or not. I think some of the older advice was to like throw out all your pots and pans and get all new ones, but that's really not the case. Like the toaster or like a waffle iron or something that's just like really challenging to wash completely. Those are the things that might need to be replaced. And then also just like talking with your family or whoever you're living with and figure out what's going to work best for you. Like, unfortunately, gluten-free food is really expensive. So like a lot of people, if they're in a household and one person doesn't need to eat gluten or that one person is gluten-free and the other can eat gluten, it may work best for them to have separate meals at times. So just like working with the people you live with to figure out what Mm. is going to work you are there when we think about gluten-free we obviously think about the kitchen first and foremost but are there other places around the house that we should be kind of conscientious that we may run into issues yeah it's hard to because gluten-free has become so popularized and like bad diety and almost a marketing term in some way which is it's good and bad there are more gluten-free products on the shelf they're better it's more available but then there's also the negative parts of oh well people just don't really understand for people that really need it the biggest thing is like gluten has to be ingested or eaten and taken into the body for it to have a reaction so the only thing that are really necessary anything in or around the the lips or the mouth is suggested to be gluten-free. But all these other products like shampoos or lotions and stuff really don't need to unless you want to. At the end of the day, it's your own health. It's your body. You need to make those decisions for yourself. But in the research, it doesn't suggest that any of those other products going onto your skin are going to um, cause reaction and celiac disease. So like a lip balm, a toothpaste, more helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Your foot cream, less likely. <laughs> I mean, unless you're putting your feet in your mouth. <laughs> the only thing I can think of is my almost two-year-old who like puts everything uh-huh. in his mouth. The toes haven't been as much lately, but. <laughs> and that, I guess that maybe was to say kind of the developmental level of the person too. And that might uh-huh. be more important. Yeah. Or like right now, like I live with a roommate who eats gluten, but if I were to one day have children in the house and like children just touch everything. So like maybe they would eat gluten-free in the house, even if they didn't have to. And there would be other times and places where they could have gluten exposure. Yeah. 
Yeah, they touch everything. <laughs> that is an understatement. You know, the viruses and everything come in. I'm curious, taking a little bit on the subject of food, do you have any, you know, like your absolute favorite substitute that you like to share with people, like a favorite pasta or bread or whatever you pick? Oh, yeah. I really like the Char brand. I think they're originally from Italy, but they have started having more products here in the States. And I really like a lot of their products. Awesome. I do not have celiac. I did notice some improvement, at least for some time, with avoiding gluten and was pretty strictly gluten-free for about two years and discovered Aldi has a pasta that I actually really enjoy and <laughs> I, I buy it regularly. It has quinoa and brown rice. So nutritionally is like a decent source of protein and fiber and the texture's good. It doesn't have a funky aftertaste. So that's kind of one of my things that has stayed in our routine. And I guess maybe that's a, a natural segue into kind of the difference between celiac and then folks who, you know, maybe similarly when they, their testing is negative, but they proceed in taking gluten out of their diet and do find it to be helpful. There are definitely other diagnoses that benefit from the, the gluten-free diet. Uh, one of the ones I can definitely think of is eosinophilic esophagitis. A lot of people have gluten, gluten as a trigger. And my biggest thing is I don't know what it's like to be in your body. And so if you're telling me that eating gluten-free helps you, then I'm really excited for you. I'm happy. It makes you feel better. And there are like a lot of different diagnoses that have been associated, like seeing improvements with the gluten-free diet. I think celiac disease is just the one I am obviously most passionate about living with it, but I do want to continue building community with other people that also do best or thrive with the gluten-free diet. I don't want us to be like, oh, well, you're gluten-free because of this other diagnosis. We're still in community. We're still learning and helping each other. We're still all kind of going through this together, you know, the progression of better gluten-free food or like more education and options and like all of these things. So I definitely, there are definitely a lot of people that benefit from this diet. Yeah, that I will say. So that's one of the conversations I have more, more commonly too in the office. And we are overdue for doing an episode on EOE. I was supposed to have a conversation with a colleague some months ago and we had to last minute cancel. And this is a good reminder that I need to <laughs> circle back on that because similar to celiac disease, it is a, a condition that we're seeing more often. And it does for a portion of patients will really benefit from, as you mentioned, going gluten-free. And then the other common trigger food is dairy. And so but as we think about how for a lot of us, and I'm going to speak for my generation, I'm an elder millennial. For me growing up, like the perfect day of food, and I've shared this before, would have been like a toaster strudel for breakfast, a grilled cheese sandwich for lunch, and then uh, maybe a pasta or pizza for dinner. It was, and, and of course, the toaster strudel had to have that cream cheese frosting. So it was like refined carbs and cheese. All day long, which is probably not great from what we now know for our microbiome, maybe delicious from our taste buds and making us feeling like we're surviving and kind of hitting those pleasure points in our brain. But that's a big switch to make those changes. And what's, I think, challenging for EOE, and I'd be curious if you've noticed same or differences with celiac personally or with the folks you've worked with, 
the EOE symptoms don't always correlate with the dietary change. And so what's really challenging, especially for those folks that their symptoms don't correlate with those changes is there's less kind of that internal like ability to say, oh yeah, what I'm doing is making a difference. Especially if you're having to wait for an endoscopy to say, yep, it's looking better or nope, things look the same. So I'm curious kind of what your experience was in that switch to gluten-free, kind of what you noticed about your body and if that's similar to others too. It definitely will take some time to like fully heal, but a lot of people see or feel, start feeling better within a couple of days or weeks. The biggest thing is like when you're first going gluten-free, you're oftentimes going to make mistakes because you've never lived this way before. You've never done this before. You've maybe never had experience with other people doing it before. And so there's a lot of opportunities for mistakes when we're learning anything in life. And so people may not be healing as quickly as they want, or they may be still having reactions and not really understanding why or where the gluten is coming from or where their exposure was. And that's, I think, the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. But once you figure out those things like, oh, well, actually we were sharing the butter dish and my partner was spreading, using the butter to spread on toast and then I used it. Once you find those things where you're getting those accidental exposures, you're going to heal faster and feel better. Mm -hmm. That does take time and mistakes happen and you have to give yourself grace getting super hard on yourself about, oh my gosh, I had an accidental exposure. Now I feel bad. And then also making yourself feel bad in the mental aspect of that is not going to help. You can learn from your mistake without beating yourself up about it. Amen. (laughs) So true. And yet so hard because so many of us really, we are taught from a young age, perfection is what we should strive for. And rather than understanding that the learning along the way is actually the more important part of the whole. One thing we haven't mentioned specifically, and I think we'd probably be kicking ourselves if we forgot to mention, when you're gluten-free, like what what do you have to avoid? Obviously there's wheat, but there are a few other things too. Yeah, so gluten is a protein and it's found in the grains wheat, barley, and rye. One of the caveats... I guess you could say, um, would be oats. So oats are naturally gluten-free grain, but because of growing processes and harvesting and just other processing and getting it from the field to your table, there's a lot of opportunity for cross-contact and cross-contact being just an event where uh, a gluten-free food is exposed to gluten. And so they are naturally gluten-free, but it is recommended that those food, the oats be certified gluten-free if you have celiac disease or need to be gluten-free for any of these medical conditions, just because there is a high risk of that cross-contact event. And what does it take for something to be certified gluten-free? One thing I like to talk about is not everything you eat has to be certified gluten-free because it's kind of similar to like organic where these certifications can be great, but It also costs the company more, which then in turn oftentimes costs the consumer more. And gluten-free food is already super expensive. But there are third parties that will test foods for companies and give them a certification label. And so to be tested or to be labeled gluten-free in the U.S., it has to test under 20 parts per million of gluten. It's very hard to understand (laughs) 
for most people what 20 parts per million of gluten is, but even a crumb of something that contains gluten is enough to cause someone with celiac to have a reaction. But this 20 parts per million is in studies suggests that anything under that isn't going to cause reaction in people with celiac disease. So these companies will work with the third party, get their foods tested however often, and then they can have that label. So would be, and I mean, I liken it to somewhat, there's some similarities and some differences, but as we think about food allergy and some of the labeling issues that make that challenging as well on the same line in the same facility there is at least a little bit better process in place i would say for celiac and for gluten-free especially in those higher risk things like oh well it is hard too though because gluten itself is not one of the top nine allergens so then you have to understand that maybe it doesn't say wheat but it has barley And if you don't look for that because you're just looking at the contains statement, you could get messed up. Rookie mistake. I say that on me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's okay. It was a great talking point. Well, I think what's been frustrating in the food allergy arena is the wishy-washiness of some of the language may contain versus made on a line versus made in the same facility versus there's a lot of kind of CYA language that's out there that just it just makes it frustrating and when you look at tests of the actual products what ends up being found in the product like trace amounts doesn't always reflect the labeling which is a real kick in the pants because we like to have certainty we want to feel like we're doing the things that are safe for ourselves for our kids and yet we also don't want to live completely in fear and as docs we want to provide in dietitians too we want to provide great evidence-based education. There's a lot of gray (laughs) falls in with some of that. Yeah, exactly. It it really is hard and it takes time to learn. But like you said, things like, oh, well, it's made in the same facility, but these food production processes may have 10 different buildings. Plus, like maybe it's technically the same facility, but it's a whole different building and you never know. Yeah. And so it, it definitely is something that like really needs to be worked on and like getting more clarity for people that do have these food allergies or intolerances so that they, like you said, don't have to live in fear when they're just doing their daily thing. Like we all have to eat. We all have to eat every day. And we don't want to be afraid of eating because that leads to other problems. So you have put together an incredible resource for people who have celiac disease or are adopting a gluten-free lifestyle. Can you share a little bit more about that? Unfortunately, a lot of people get their diagnosis and they are told to go gluten-free. Maybe their visit with a provider isn't very long or the provider just doesn't have enough resources to support them. And then they're just kind of, maybe they get a referral to a dietitian, maybe they don't. But a lot of people have this experience where they get their diagnosis and then feel overwhelmed and lost and given no direction. So I've put together a course of 13 different modules to go over the need to know things about celiac disease. What is celiac disease? What is an autoimmune disease? How do you read those labels and like figure out what works for you? Different things like how to advocate for yourself when you go to eat out or go and spend time with family and friends at a holiday all of these kind of need to know things that really just will help you feel more confident in living 
and being gluten-free in this really gluten-filled world. And it's just a way to learn because though there are places on the internet you can find a lot of this information, there's also a lot of fear-mongering and people telling you absolutes. Like you can absolutely never eat in a restaurant again. Well, that's not true. So just kind of giving this information in a way that is evidence-based is also some of it coming from my own experiences and sharing some of those as well, just so you have a starting off point from when you get your diagnosis. Really build your confidence and give you the knowledge you need to really thrive. Amazing. Where can people find more information about your course and connect with you? Yeah, so my website is called Gluten Freedom Nutrition. And then you can find me on Instagram at Gluten Freedom Nutrition or my personal, which is more like lifestyle. Because although I'm very passionate about this, I still also love a lot of other things. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so that's Alexa Prass RDN. And those are where you can find me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alexa. I'm so excited we were able to connect. I'm sure we will chat again very soon. And in the meantime, go Buckeyes. Go Bucks. <laughs> Take care. Bye. If you are loving this mix of self-discovery and science found here on the Becoming Immune Confident podcast, I'd love to invite you to sign up for my email list. Hop over to drkarawada.com and hit subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on any insights into new immune system science or how we can harness healing through our daily habits. Are you ready to feel confident, energized, and more like that BA that you used to be? Here's how we can work together. Jennifer, an autoimmune dietitian, and I, board-certified immunologist, have put together the one and only Becoming Immune Confident comprehensive course, coaching, and community membership. What we do is we help women with misbehaving immune systems reclaim control over their health while minimizing fatigue, fog, and pain, all caused from too much inflammation. So if you are ready to have confidence and clarity around your immune system health, and a sense of certainty knowing that you are doing the best for your health and the health of your family, hop over to immuneconfident.com for details on how we can work together. We can't wait to connect. Hey there, amazing listeners. Before we wrap up today's episode, I want to take a quick moment to ask for your support. If you're enjoying the content of the Becoming Immune Confident podcast we're bringing you week after week, There's a simple but incredibly impactful way you can show your appreciation. You see, leaving a review is like giving us a virtual high five, and it helps our podcast reach even more people who could benefit from the valuable insights, entertainment, and inspiration we strive to provide week after week. So if you're finding value in what you hear, here's what you can do. Open up your podcast app, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform, and give us a glowing five-star review. We're dedicated to bringing you the best and your feedback helps us fine-tune our content to suit your interests and needs. But hey, don't stop there. If you have a moment, leaving a few kind words in the review section goes a long way too. Share what you love about the podcast, your favorite episodes, or how it's made a positive impact on your life. Your words not only brighten our day, but they also encourage others to join our incredible community. Remember, every five-star review and every word of encouragement counts. 
It's like fuel to keep us creating, innovating, and striving to make your listening experience even better. So if you're up for it, show us some love by leaving us that virtual high five in the form of a five-star review today. And a huge shout out to all of you who have already taken the time to do so. You rock. Thank you for being a part of our podcast journey, and we can't wait to keep bringing you more amazing episodes in the future. Until next time, keep shining and keep listening and keep on building that confidence in yourself and your immune system health. Take care.